James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, and it's found on page 898 of your pew Bible. That's James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, reading here from the NIV. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is at fault in what he says, sir, if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a a great forest fire is set by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. It sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is it set set itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we can praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a tree bear olives or can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Many of us have very clear memories of things that other people have said that have hurt us. I imagine that probably most of you can remember things even that go all the way back to your childhood that people have said that really cut you. But I wonder if you have that that clear of a memory of the things that you have said that have cut others. We all have those moments. We all have those, those conversations that we walk away from when we've said things that we wished we hadn't. Many times we'll walk away from a conversation kicking ourselves and regretting what we've said And when we saw the look on the other person's face. But maybe there's even times when you walk away gloating about what you've said, maybe even proud of the way that you have cut somebody else with your tongue. I know that before I came to Christ, I used to pride myself in being able to say the perfect put-down. I had a sharp tongue and I could use it with deadly accuracy. But when I came to Christ, that changed. It changed. My heart towards other people changed as God had changed my heart. But I'm ashamed to say that my sinful speech didn't stop altogether when I came to Christ. It grieves me immensely, but there's still times that I say things that are sinful to other people. In a moment of anger, and usually with a family member, I can still say hurtful things. And there's times even that I will say hurtful things and quote scripture to other people. And I can be in those moments doctrinally correct, but my heart 
is foul in those moments. And I'm actually, in those moments, looking more like a child of Satan than I am like a child of Christ. Because remember how Satan used the very word of God to attack Jesus. And apart from God's grace, we can all do that to each other as well. So James here in this passage gives us a powerful warning that we must guard our tongues. Remember that he said back in chapter 1, verse 26, that if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So there's a very clear testimony of the reality of our relationship with Jesus Christ by the words that we speak. So where do you stand in this? Is your religion worthless or are you striving to live a life of obedience and repenting of the sins of your speech? Are you living a life that is characterized by words that build up or by words that tear down? Each one of us is capable of saying shameful things, but if the Holy Spirit is alive in our hearts, we will be growing in godliness. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of God we will grow, and the things that we have said will change. They'll change, and you'll have a desire to encourage other people and to glorify God in your speech. But the warning about the tongue isn't just in James. It's throughout the Bible. In the Psalms, we read of warnings about the tongue 23 times, in Proverbs 19 times. But there's no warning about the tongue that is clearer than the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, 33 to 37. So please turn with me there. Matthew 12, 33 to 37. Jesus here speaking to the Pharisees says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Now, we went into great length last week to explain what the word justified can mean. And in this context, he's saying, by your words, you show yourself to be justified, or by your words, you show yourself to be condemned. And Jesus here is speaking what would say would be what would say is very, very harsh. He's calling this the Pharisees a brood of vipers. He's calling them snakes. And there is a time. There is a time to be harsh in the way that you rebuke somebody else. But we have to be so careful because Jesus here had a perfect heart towards those those men, and he had a, not only did he have a perfect heart, but he had perfect insight into what was going on in their hearts. So we have to be very, very careful in the way that we use our words because they have great power. 
They have great power to build up, but they also have great power to destroy. So James here gives us a dire warning in chapter 3. He's showing us the, the principle that we see throughout Scripture of putting off sinful behavior and putting on righteous behavior. In verses 1 to 12 that we're going to be looking at this morning, he teaches us to put off using the tongue sinfully. As we'll focus on next week from verses 13 to 18, he's talking about how we're instead to put on wisdom which comes from above. So first of all, he says in these first few verses that we are to watch our tongues. And he starts out in verse 1 saying, Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So James here begins with, with a warning against those who desire to be teachers. Now, why does he do that? Because there is no person, I believe, who has greater power to build up or to destroy than a teacher. Somebody who speaks about doctrine, especially somebody who has the, the office of a teacher or a pastor, has great power to lead, but also great power to mislead. And so we have to be so very careful. I, this, this week, as I prepared for this sermon, I was so convicted again and again of ways that I have sinned in my speech. I strive week in, week out to, to present what the Bible teaches, not my opinion. You wouldn't want to sit, to sit here just to hear my opinion. You want to hear what God's Word says, not what John Tucker says. So it's my prayer every week that I'll be faithful to what God's Word teaches. But there are many, many teachers around the world in this very city who week after week are proclaiming their own opinions. They're proclaiming the world's opinions and they are straying from what God's Word says. So there is again no one who can have a greater impact for good or for ill, than a teacher of God's word. But that's not just true for those who have that, that official capacity. Every time that we open our mouths to say something doctrinal, we are actually being a teacher. So James says here we have to be extremely careful, extremely careful about what we say. So who are your heroes? Who are your heroes? Some people would choose athletes or musicians or movie stars, but as Christians, I hope that we're choosing a different sort of hero. I hope that, that we are choosing, for the most part, those who the world would disdain. Our heroes should, first and foremost, be the people that we read about in the Bible. Now, Jesus Christ is the one who demands all of our loyalty and all of our honor, but we all tend to look upon, upon certain characters in the Bible and identify them and maybe look up to them. So maybe you strive to have the faith of Abraham or the humility of Moses or the heart of David or the wisdom of Solomon or the long-suffering of Job or the boldness of Peter. But what about those outside of the Bible? 
Who are your heroes outside the Bible? Jeff Thomas notes that for Christians, most of us have heroes who are primarily Bible preachers. And I think he's right. From my conversations with many of you, the men that you respect the most are famous Bible teachers. And I'm not exempt from this. My favorite teachers listed by century are going back to the, to the, the 17th century, John Owen. And in the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards. In the 19th century, C.H. Spurgeon. In the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones or John MacArthur or John Piper. And the Lord has, has used these men powerfully in my life and my ministry to have an impact on my doctrine and my life. By the way, it's just a coincidence, coincidence here that most of them are named John. But, but most of us, if not all of us, have been taught some profound truth by these men. Many of us have been encouraged in the midst of a trial or challenged in the midst of our sin or have fallen to our knees in worship as we listen to a favorite preacher online or on the radio. And many of us adore these men even though we've never met them. Now, with the radio and millions and millions of sermons at our fingertips on the internet, exalting certain preachers is, is a, a common thing in this culture. It's a common phenomenon, but it's also not a new phenomenon. Paul even talked about this thing back to the, with the Corinthian church. In the Corinthian church, some were identifying with Paul and others with Peter and others with Apollos, but they crossed the line into sin as they, they divided into camps based on these men. So Paul rebuked them sharply and asked them rhetorically, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized into the name of Paul? And in 3.7, he explains that neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but it is God who gives the growth. So respecting well-known preachers is a natural thing, and it's often a good thing. Because where the world exalts heroes based on their physical appearance or their lifestyle or their bank account, as Christians, we exalt teachers because of their words. We exalt teachers because of their words. We talked on Friday night with the youth about how, how God is pleased to save people through the foolishness of preaching. The world looks at preaching as foolishness. But we as Christians respect those who are able to handle the word of God rightly. Now, of course, we can't hear men like Jonathan Edwards or C.H. Spurgeon anymore. They've been long dead but we do have their words written down for us to read, or we can listen to men online reading their, their sermons from the past. And highly, I'd highly recommend that you, you take some time and download sermons by these men and listen to them for yourselves. These men were, were giants in the word, and they were, were heroes of the faith. But whenever you listen to any man, you need to listen with caution. So any endorsement that I can give here is not a blanket endorsement. Each of these men have weaknesses. And each of the men that I've listed would be the first to say that they understand the power of their words and that they would warn us to be vigilant and to be like Bereans to study God's word for ourselves. 
Furthermore, they're not the men who've been called to lead you. The Lord has, has placed men in this church who have been given the authority to teach. Now, I obviously have that role as the, the main teaching pastor in this church, but each of the men who've been called to lead in this church is also given the authority to teach. Now, granted, they might not do that publicly as often as I do, but Scripture does not make any distinction between the role of pastor and the role of elder. Men who are called to lead in the church are also called to teach in the church. It is a qualification for the elder that we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So the men that you're listening to on the internet or the radio, they don't know you. They don't know you. They don't know where you struggle. They don't know where you need encouragement. They don't know what your strengths are. They don't know what your weaknesses are. But I would imagine that each one of them, if they could, would, would warn you to be careful and to, to measure carefully what they say against God's word and not to take their authority above the, the men who have been called to lead in your church, but far above that. They would warn you not to take their word above the word of Scripture, or even anywhere close to being on par with the word of Scripture. One of the five tenets of the, of the, the Protestant Reformation is sola scriptura, Scripture alone. That's our authority, and that is one of the things that divides us from those who teach that any other authority, like the Pope or tradition, it's Scripture alone that provides our authority. So while James here would, would primarily have church leaders in mind as those that the Lord has gifted with being gifts to the church, teachers are gifts to the church to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Now that's true especially for those who are called to be elders. But as I said from the outset, I'm regularly reminded of the gravity of what I do here on a Sunday morning. Regularly reminded that I will give an account for the th things that I say, especially for the things that I say from this pulpit. And we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I am going to be judged with greater strictness. I want you to note here that while we're judged by greater strictness, we're not judged by a greater standard. All Christians, all people are judged by the same standard. We're all called to live holy lives before God, and we are all called to guard our mouths and to be conscious of every idle word. But we who teach will be judged by greater strictness. We have a greater responsibility. As Jesus said in Luke 12, 47 and 48, that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Now notice, both were punished. Both were punished. But the one who knew his master's will was punished more greatly than the one who didn't. Likewise, the proverbial heathen on a desert island who's never heard the gospel will still be punished 
by God. They're, they're still under the wrath of God. They still have creation as a testimony against them. We read about that in Romans 1, 18 to 32. But Jesus taught the same principle when he said in Matthew eleven twenty 20 to 24, that because Chorazin and Bethsaida had seen the miracles that Jesus had performed and still rejected him, that their punishment would be worse than for that of Sodom. So we who, who know God's word have a greater responsibility. So those who consider themselves teachers but don't live in obedience themselves are in trouble. There's many people that are very able to accurately speak truth from God's words, but their lives don't measure up. There's a word for that. It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. Remember those from chapter 2 who claimed to have faith but didn't have the works to back it up. These are the ones who are often the most critical of other people. They have not experienced grace themselves, and so they are not quick to offer grace to other people. They forget that we often, all of us, stumble in many ways, just as James warns in verse 2. And some, some such people often consider themselves to be teachers, and they're often the quickest to offer unsolicited advice. Paul warned against this hypocrisy in Romans 2, 19-24. He warned those who consider themselves to be guides to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, instructors of the foolish, a teacher of children. But he said that, that you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? And even as I say these things, I'm convicted of the time that I have wasted through the weeks. God's word calls that, calls that stealing. I'm stealing time from you, and I'm stealing time from God. And so I'm publicly confessing that and repenting of that and asking your prayer to help me to be diligent to not steal time from God. We all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. So we who boast in the law dishonor God when we break the law. And because of that, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. Now, the principle that applies to us here is that when we say one thing and do another, that the name of God is blasphemed among non-Christians because of us, especially with our sins of our speech. But again, this isn't just in the case of public teaching ministry. Jesus warned quite plainly in, in Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. We talked about that in depth when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. But let's go there again. Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. Judge not that you be not judged, for the judgment that you pronounce, you will, be you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not, do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And when I preach on this, I explain that quite often the speck that is in our brother's eye is made out of the same material as the log that is in our eye. We are often prone to see our weaknesses in other people. And we judge others particularly harshly because we don't want to judge ourselves. We feel better about ourselves and our sin when we look down on others because of their sin. So we need to be careful to measure ourselves before God and to deal with our sin before God before going and trying to help somebody else. Paul taught in Galatians 6.1 that, that we need to, that we need, if, we, if, if we're going to go and restore somebody who's caught in sin, we need to do it gently, being careful, lest we ourselves have been tempted. And I found that even this past week. That when I've sought to, to encourage or admonish somebody else, I've found myself being tempted by those very sins. And these cases, for the most part, like God has, has brought victory. But we need to be so careful, so careful, when we set out to correct or to teach somebody else. James goes on, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. The NIV says here that the man is that such a man is able to keep his whole body in check, but I believe the, the ESV translation actually fits the context better. It says, able to bridle his whole body. Essentially, James is saying that if, if the tongue is controlled, that the person's life will be characterized by self-control in other areas as well. And it's only those whose, whose lives are characterized by self-control are called to be leaders. They're the only ones that are really called to teach. Now, James here doesn't mean perfect in the sense of sinless perfection. None of us is going to have that this side of glory. But this person's life will be characterized by obedience to God, that they are going to be the, the Greek word here is, is, that's translated perfect is tilios, which essentially in this context means complete. That's the same way that James use it, uses it in chapter 1, verse 4, when he's saying that, that trials lead to maturity. And it's only those who are demonstrating maturity in their walk that are called to lead. If you are, are speaking God's word into somebody else's life, but they can see that by your life you are not living in obedience, do you think your words are going to have very much weight in that person's life? Deal with the sin first. Deal with it. When it's a public sin, deal with it publicly. But most importantly, deal with it before God. And then you will, you will as you grow, your words will have weight. And people you will find are actually going to seek you out for their count, for counsel. So don't put yourself forward as a leader. Let yourself be put forward by others as a leader when they see your obedience, when they see your maturity, when they see your growth. Believe me, the leaders in this church are on the lookout for people who are showing that type of maturity and are showing that type of growth. 
and we will seek you out and encourage you and spur you on in that. It's what we're called to do. Then in verses 3 to 5, James goes on to demonstrate the power of the tongue. He tells us the power of the tongue. And he gives us three striking examples of big things that are controlled by little things. Now, we tend to think of the first two as generally positive and the third as negative, but, but each one can have, have positive or negative connotations. A bit, first of all, is, is a, a tiny piece of metal that you put into a horse's mouth. And with that little piece of metal, you can guide a horse that is much stronger than you. When I was visiting Jane a couple of weeks ago, we went to see the movie War Horse. Now, that movie chronicles the, the, the exploits of a powerful thoroughbred through World War I. Near the beginning of the movie, you see that this horse is, is used to, to plow a, a rocky field. And then you see the horse carrying soldiers, cavalry soldiers, into battle. And then later on, again, pulling massive artillery guns, all guided by a small piece of metal in its mouth. Likewise, massive ships are steered by a relatively small rudder. Ships have been used positively to carry men and cargo all over the world. But just recently, we saw how an incompetent captain can cause mayhem when the, the Costa Concordia struck rocks off the coast of Italy, and this 300-meter, 114-ton ship was guided by a, a very small rudder, killing 32 people. Likewise, an overconfident and un, undervigilant captain caused using a tiny rudder to guide the 260-meter, 552-ton Titanic into an iceberg, killing 1,517 people. So again, a, a tiny rudder guiding a massive ship. Forest fires are always a, a common risk in the dry Okanagan summer. Far too often, homes are destroyed and lives are lost because of a small spark, because somebody failed to extinguish their campfire. All in a region that we really should know better. For many of us, the, the 2003 Okanagan Mountain Park fire is still recent history, and it was started by a lightning bolt that, that struck behind Rattlesnake Island. Now, that original fire was small and was ignored by firefighters, but when the winds picked up and fanned it into a massive firestorm, it burned 60,000 hectares, forced the evacuation of 27,000 people, and destroyed 239 homes. All started by a relatively small spark. So the tongue is a member, and it boasts of great things. The tongue is a small body part compared to us, relatively speaking. For the average adult, it's only about 10 centimeters long and weighs 60 to 70 grams, but has a lot of power. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Words have the power to build up, and words have the power to tear down. The childish cliche, sticks and stones may break my bones, 
but words will never hit me, will never hurt me, couldn't be further from the truth. True, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can hurt. Words can hurt immensely, and they can leave a much more lasting pain than even sticks and stones can. As I said at the outset, I'm sure we can all remember hurtful things that others have said to us. Some of us have been hurt by things that have been said to us, uh, to us by others in this church, even in this past week. And some of us have said hurtful things to others in this church this past week. But I want to focus for a moment on a particular kind of fire that's kindled by the tongue, that of gossip and slander. Gossip is, spread, gossip is the spread of information about other people, whereas slander is the spread of misinformation about other people. Some people think it's okay to spread information under the guise of, of prayer, saying, you know, I'm struggling with this person. You need to, to, to pray for me as I struggle with this person. We need to pray for this person because they're in a particular sin. You need to be so careful because your heart is deceptive. And you can speak gossip and disguise it as being spiritual. Just because the information is true doesn't mean it's okay to spread. If you have a problem with somebody, there's two people you should go to. The individual and to God. Gossip is just as sinful as slander. But you know, sometimes, i got to say, it's, it's almost laughable. When I first candidated at this church a little over two years ago, there was, was slander going around that, that said that I had six children. And th- this, this started through a, a piece of, of correct information that spread, as, as people in their sin against me and again each, against each other, spread a lie. It was like a game of, of broken telephone, where there was a piece of true information that was spread as gossip, and then quickly it changed into slander. The truth of it was, I went on a, a single date with a woman who had had six children. Now, she had never been married before, She ended a relationship when she came to Christ. She ended a sinful relationship when she came to Christ. But quickly that spun out of control. And I got to say, I mean, in that particular case, it was really innocuous and, and easily corrected. But there's been other instances in this church when there's been slander and gossip that have been spread that are not innocuous, that are not easily stopped, are not easily corrected. And I pray that if you are guilty of that, that you are confessing that to the Lord. And if you have, if you have done that, you need to confess also to the individual that you've sinned against. You see, gossip and slander have three victims. There, there's three people that are, are affected by the sin of gossip and slander. You, the person that you slandered, and the person that you are sharing the the slander with. 
But ultimately, your sin is against God, and you need to deal with that because it is a fire. It is a fire that, would, that Satan would use to try to destroy individuals and try to destroy the unity that God is creating in this church. So we need to be very, very serious about it. But words don't just hurt feelings. Words have the power to bring life, and they have the power to bring death. Proverbs 8.21 says, the, power has, the tongue has the power of life and death. So if you are here as a Christian this morning, you are here because of the words of another individual. You are here because somebody shared the gospel with you, and the Holy Spirit gave you a heart of repentance and used those words to make you alive in Christ Jesus. But just as words can, can bring life like that, they can also bring death. I was talking earlier about the way that we tend to respect popular preachers. But we need to measure each one against God's word. Because they are not your authority. I am not your authority. God's word is ultimately your authority. Yes, I have a, a vestige of power that has been, an authority that has been placed in me with the office of pastor. But I am not your ultimate authority. God is, and it is through God's word that you have to determine whether what I am saying is right or what I'm saying is wrong, whether what I'm saying is true or what I'm saying is false. We need to be so careful. We also need to be careful not to go too far in the other direction. You see, when we, when we tend to put individuals up on a pedestal, it, it's, it's easy to, to knock them off the pedestal as well. And I know that, that one individual that I did that with is with John Piper. As I said earlier, John Piper has had a really big impact on my life and my ministry, but in areas that he has failed. So when, when he has endorsed individuals like Rick Warren who, who preach error, I've tended to, to get, get upset and to turn away from him. Or when he has said that it's okay for men to listen to the teaching of women like Beth Moore, I've tended to, to, to want to turn away from him. Now, there is a time to do that, and you need great discernment to know at what point you say, I'm not going to listen to that individual anymore. But you also need to be very careful that you're not reacting because you've idolized a certain individual in your heart. So there is a time to, to turn away from, from preachers who stray from the truth. But these men are just men, and they all have blind spots. And we need to be so, so careful that we don't adopt their blind spots as well. Because it can, can lead to error. It can lead to false assurance. It can lead to people thinking that they're saved when they're not genuinely saved. Many, many times I've seen people adopt a particular doctrinal position that's that's patently false simply because a well-known teacher has taught it. Look at the damage that, that Arius did in the early church by promoting the heresy that Jesus Christ is not fully God. 
And it's really no different today when popular teachers like Rob Bell downplay the importance of the virgin birth or teach that, or teach that, 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 that everybody's going to be saved. They teach universalism, which is, which is heresy. These men are going to be judged very severely by God unless they repent. But it's not just true on a big scale either. It reaches into our personal lives. It happens when supposed biblical counselors offer counsel that is far from biblical. I've heard evidence even this week of counsel from local pastors that would shock you, all the while claiming the authority of God. But it also happens when we talk to each other. Whenever we, we talk to each other and speak of doctrinal things, we're either speaking the truth or speaking error. We're either speaking obedience and the things that build up, or we're speaking disobedience and sin, speaking things that tear down. Finally, in verses 6 to 12, James teaches that you can't tame the tongue. You can't tame the tongue. We, we've already talked about the fire that the tongue can start. He says here that it is a world of unrighteousness. And it's set among our members, staining the whole body and setting on fire the entire course of life and is set on fire by hell. He says that, that all kinds of, of animals have been, excuse me, have been tamed. But we cannot tame the tongue. You can't tame your tongue because the tongue is simply speaking what comes out of the heart. The tongue simply speaking what comes out of the heart. In a parable, parallel passage from the one that I read in Matthew earlier, we read in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45. Luke 6, 43 to 45. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So an evil heart speaks evil abundantly, and a good heart speaks good things abundantly. So when somebody says something that's nasty out of anger, when I say something nasty out of anger, I am saying what's really in my heart. Likewise, when a drunk says something nasty, he's just saying what's in his heart, and, and the filters have been removed because of the alcohol. So James says here that, that, that we can tame all kinds of animals, but we cannot tame the tongue because we cannot tame our hearts. We need new hearts. We need new hearts. It's not enough to tame the tongue. It's not enough to tame the heart. You have to kill your heart. God has to kill your heart. He has to take out a heart of stone and place in you a heart of flesh. And if that has happened, if the heart of stone has been taken out of you, if you have been born again by the Spirit, your words will change. You will speak things that are righteous. 
James says that the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. It's a restless evil. It has the poison of snakes. With our tongue, we, we bless God, and with our tongue, we curse other people. It's like a, a, a spiritual multiple personality disorder where somebody at one moment is saying something that glorifies God and then in the next moment is saying something nasty that glorifies Satan. Brothers and sisters, these things should not be. James says that, that a spring can't pour forth fresh water and salt water at the same time. If you were characterized by speaking things that are evil, you really need to question the reality of your salvation. If you're not growing in godliness and growing in things that edify, you need to question your salvation. Now, of course, we all fall short in many ways. We all fall short in many ways. But as we will sing, there is power in the blood. There is power in the blood. You cannot tame your tongue. But if you were born again in Jesus Christ, your tongue has already been tamed. You've already been given a new heart. So you need to live in the power that God gives you. Remember that if you are in Jesus Christ, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. Paul said that, that God's power is made perfect in weakness. So confess your weakness to God. Confess it. How many of you here have, have strived to stop a particular sin in your own strength and failed again and again and again? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in our Bible study. Before I came to Christ, I would have probably quit smoking a hundred times. Once it was for as long as, as six months, but there was times that I would quit for five minutes. And then think, I don't really want to stop this because I was addicted to it. I idolized cigarettes. But when I came to Christ, and about two months after my salvation was convicted about smoking and determined to quit, God empowered me. And apart from, from very brief temptations, God has completely set me free, free from that. And that's almost 20 years ago. And God can set you free as well from whatever sin it is that you're struggling with. God can set you free from the sins that you commit with your tongue. Before I came to Christ, I would have been I was characterized not only by having a, a sharp tongue, I was I was characterized by having a foul tongue. And I I would swear so much that I didn't even think about it. But not long after coming to Christ, I remember somebody saying to me, like, what's with you? You never swear. What had happened was I had been given a new heart. And out of the abundance of my new heart, I was speaking. So brothers and sisters, 
Claim the strength that is flowing in you. Go to God confessing your sin. Go to others confessing your sin where necessary and cry out to God for the help that only he can give. Now don't listen to the condemnation of the devil that is is telling you that you are too wicked to be saved. Don't listen to the condemnation of the devil that is going to that is telling you that you can't be forgiven. Because the only righteousness that you have is the righteousness that comes in Christ alone. But as we saw last week, although the safe that faith that the faith that saves is alone, the faith that saves is never alone. Let's pray.